Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to be looking at this final uh, piece of advice, encouragement, edification, whatever you want to call it, as Paul concludes his letter to a group of people in Corinth. And I want you to understand that this is a, at least for me, this is one of those texts that when I'm doing my own Bible reading, it's really easy to gloss over. You know, Paul's talking to a bunch of people I've never met. He's got, talking about plans he's going to make, vacations he's going to go on that I'm never going to go on. And I can just look at this and go, uh, done, and totally dismiss it. But in the midst of this conclusion to the people in Corinth, Paul has a moment where he wraps up, if you pay attention, you'll notice he wraps up everything he's written about through these 16 chapters in two verses. He gives five imperatives. Imperatives are bossy words. They're commands. They're things he expects them to do. He's written and he's corrected some behavior. He's encouraged some behavior. He's brought up some false theology. He's opened their eyes to how this Jesus and the cross has shaped everything we do and become. And it's, it's interesting to all of us because if you take seriously what Paul's writing, it's very similar to what you and I should experience as we go through it. And I want to be able to show you when we're done that everything Paul brings up in these two tiny verses is the summary and conclusion to everything that he's been talking about for 16 entire chapters. But let me remind you, especially for those of you who haven't been with us in this series, we're calling it the cruciformed life. How are we shaped by the cross and the person on the cross? How does this Jesus who died on the cross and what happened because of that death, how does that change who we are and how we live? Now, if you look at the people in Corinth, let me tell you a little bit about them. They had accepted a lot of pagan ideas and philosophies. They were living as much like the world as they were as followers of Jesus. And their faithfulness to, to God at times was suspect. They were found to be more faithful to their teachers than they were the one that the teachers were teaching about. They had substituted hu- human wisdom for God's word They were divided, they were immoral, they were litigious, they had perverted ideas about sexuality, marriage, divorce, and celibacy, and they were proud of how progressive they were. They were self-indulgent, they were indifferent to the needs of others around them, they misunderstood spiritual gifts and used them to tout themselves instead of others. There was a lack of love, but other than that, it was a great church. You see, I've joked with you guys repeatedly that it If we're not careful, we'll miss the point that this church is no different than most churches, including our own. That it's really easy for all of us to be independent brokers, if you will, of of the gospel, rather than a community that's unified and together around principles. I wanna read verses 13 and 14 from that section that was just read for us, and I want you to see these imperatives. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Those are five commands. Uh, In syntax, they're called imperatives, bossy words, commands. Paul is telling them what to do. He's telling them what to do because he cares about them. He's not just blistering them for their ineptness. He's actually challenging them to go forward. And I want us to hear this today. I don't want my tone in this message to come across as just corrective. I want it to actually be inspiring that all of us will hear this and stop and think, yes, I need to do this, because not only is the Holy Spirit leading me to be convicted of this, but I see the value in what Paul's calling the people of Corinth to do as well as for us. So because of those five imperatives, I'm just gonna break them down into three points today and walk us through this and encourage all of us to consider this for ourselves. 
The very first is watch out. If you're walking in a dark room and someone yells, watch out, you're gonna flinch, right? You should. You should pay attention. I've never understood that. It's a big thing, whether it's on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, someone comes up and fakes punches another person and they flinch and they laugh at him for flinching. It's an instinct. Paul is instinctually calling all of us to pay attention. I know as a recovering baseball player that when a coach would yell, heads up, something was about to happen or yell out at a kid not paying attention. As a little league coach, I would look out or as a softball coach, I'd look out and see a girl who wasn't paying attention. I'm like, heads up, ball's in play, here's the pitch. Because you know, someone can get hurt if they're, not, if they're in the middle of a game and a ball is hit and you're not looking for it, those hurt. I remember coaching T-ball when our oldest, Alex, was just a peanut and one of his friends and uh, one of our best friend's daughters was named Samantha. And Samantha had no more interest in on being on a T-ball field than she did anything else in life. And we'd say, Sammy. And she'd say, uh-huh. Are you, are you watching the ball? Uh-huh. Her back's turned to home plate. I got a video of this one time. She had a real long ponytail and she was bent over at the waist, rubbing her ponytail across the grass like a broom. Right after we said, Sammy, heads up. And she's like, uh-huh. So Sammy stayed in the grass because if I'd have put her on the infield, she'd have died. Paul saying to the church, hey, heads up, watch out, pay attention. The term he uses is be on your guard. 22 times this is used in your New Testament. So this is not a one-time event. This is an encouragement to all of us. Are you and I paying attention? Watch out. This is serious. And most of the times this is written, it's written to people that are spiritually indifferent and listless. It's the person who's in the middle of the field not paying attention to the dangers around them and what's taking place. What I want to do is I want to show you six things that the New Testament tells us to watch out for. Capitalizing on Paul's teaching, what are six things? Four of them are negatives and two of them are positives. So let's walk through it. First of all, watch for Satan. Now, as a pastor, here's where I expect you to roll your eyes. I expect the educated of us, you know, the experienced, the nuanced to go, Satan, come on, really? So we have this cartoon depiction. I, I, I want to tell you this. To many of us, Satan is a comic book villain. We, we have to have a villain to go with our superhero, right? You have to have someone who threatens Jesus. So we're going to create this character called Satan. I want you to be really careful about this. Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 5, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Watch out. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. This is not to threaten us. Please understand this clearly. Satan is real. Why do I believe Satan is real? Because Jesus thought he was real and I trust him. And I see evil in the world today and I understand that it is being promoted in multiple ways. There's a lot of us that would say, well, humans are promoting it. You're right, but they're tools of who? You see, we don't need to fear Satan because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But we don't, we're not to take him lightly. We're not to ignore what he is doing to God's world. Do not write Satan off as fictitious or powerless. He is neither. He is capable and willing of devastating anybody. Evil does not stop for a moment and think, oh, that's too much evil. Evil does evil because it's the only power it has. It's the only leverage it has. And we are told in scripture, watch out for the work of Satan in this world. And if you're not watching out, understand what the, what the risks are, that you can be hurt and others around you can be hurt by not paying attention to what Jesus has warned us to be paying attention to. We're told to watch for temptation. 
I'm gonna use the words of Jesus here in Mark 14. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. There is an action required of this. If you're not watching and seeking the Lord's help in prayer, we will often not even notice temptation when it comes. As a pastor, I've had too many of these moments where I've sat down with somebody and had them tell me. Now, when I was younger, I used to think, come on, you're just, you're just making up excuses now. But sometimes now, as I've grown older and experienced life, I will talk to somebody who's had a major moral failure and they're honest with me when they say, I never saw that coming. I, I don't know how I got into this situation. It's not because they're ignorant. It's they were inattentive. And the next thing you know, they were just taking one step further, one step further, one step further. The next thing you know, life was upside down and they could not see it coming because they were not watchful. Amen. You see, whether, unless you're a child of six or under in this room today or online watching us and joining us in worship, here's what I want you to know. There's not a person in this room who has any experience in life who doesn't know what gets them. Your best friend in life may have a temptation with a drug or an alcohol or something and you're like, that has never that never tempted me at all. It's not because you're better, you're just different. But there's not a person in this room who doesn't say, when I have failed, I have failed consistently in this area. And the Bible is warning us, and Paul is warning all of us to pay attention to the things that tempt you, and don't hide from them in fear, but pray about them so God will strengthen you in them, rather than just giving in each and every time. We're also told to watch for apathy and indifference. Watch out for apathy and difference, which if I, if I may, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a preacher who's had two churches he's been experienced in. And I'll tell you, in both of them, my biggest fear is this one, that we let others, we, we abdicate our spiritual walk to other people. We want them to do it for us. And I'm not accusing anybody in particular, but it seems the American ethic is to, if, if you can get someone else to do it for you, let them. And we're told to watch out for apathy and indifference. This is your spiritual walk. This is your spiritual life, your spiritual soul, your spiritual passion. And John received the revelation about Jesus, and John records Jesus saying these words in Revelation 3, verses 2 and 3. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in, my, in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. You see, one of the, the things we're told to be careful of is remember what Jesus said he was gonna do because he's gonna do it. And remember what Jesus asked of us because he expects us to do these things. And he even says, the burden I place on you is not actually on you, it's on me. The yoke that I'm gonna put on your neck, I'm gonna be in it with you, I'm gonna carry the weight of it. Amen. I need you to care about this. I need you to invest in this. I need you to look at your life and say, is the kingdom of heaven of any interest to me or is it just something I'm observing from a distance? It's the kid out in right field who's never had a ball hit to him who the entire time is just wondering what the snack after the game is gonna be. <laughs> and so it's time for us to wake up because we cannot disregard, disregard rather the Lord's words with impunity. And if we're gonna be able to keep it and repent, we're gonna have to know it. Watch for false teachers. This is the, the fourth of the negative commands that I wanted to just highlight for us not to rebuke, but to awaken. In 2 Peter chapter two, Peter writes these words to a group of Christians who were persecuted. There will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, or who bought them. So the challenge is clear, right? Pay attention to teachers. 
For those of you visiting Christ Church, I want to tell you that I don't think there's a huge issue in this, and I'll work very diligently to make sure I never do this, but I'm begging every single one of you, why don't trust me. When I, when I open the Word of God, don't believe that just because I've studied it that I have everything accurate and everything down. It is incumbent upon every single one of us not to be an ignorant listener. You need, to take, you need to take the truths and test them against Scripture, and if I'm wrong, correct me. And if I'm right, walk with me. But so many people are simply trusting because a person's made a pastor that he or she actually knows what they're talking about. I've known me for 55 years. I don't trust me. Why should you? You see, I want all of us, if, if you come to church without a Bible or without a text, you've already given 50% trust more than you should. Because I can mess with this on the screen. I won't. The elders won't let me. But you and I need to own our walk. Second Timothy chapter four, Paul writes to a young preacher, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Heads up. It's dangerous out there if you're not paying attention because you can get pastors to tell you whatever you want them to say. If it draws a crowd or gets an offering or gives fame and fortune, I don't think their hearts are in bad places, but it's really easy to tell people what they wanna hear rather than telling them what God wants them to hear. It's a challenge for all of us because we're just people. So those are the challenges of the things that threaten us. But then I'm gonna show you two that are ways for us to watch out in a positive way. Watch and pray in order to escape temptation. You see, I've already mentioned this previously, but I, I talked about the risk of it. Now I wanna tell you the power of it. If you wanna overcome temptation, become a person who prays about your temptations. Remember, every one of us knows if we're gonna fail, where we're gonna fail. Very few of us are caught off guard by the things that trip us up. In fact, we've invited those things into our life. We know where they came from. So the truth is, you want power over that? It's not simply by just changing your behavior, although that needs to happen. It's actually praying for the power to change your behavior. It's praying. I've, I've known people, true stories, I've known people who prayed to break the addiction of alcohol who no longer have zero, they have zero interest, and I believe them, they have zero interest of ever drinking another drop of alcohol. And I also know friends of mine who are saved by Jesus Christ who battle alcohol every single day. One's not better than the other, but God is empowering both. And in God's wisdom, he is giving some strength day by day, and for some, he has erased the temptation altogether. In God's perfect will, he's accomplishing both. So watch and pray in order that you might escape the temptations that are on you. In fact, in Ephesians 6, Paul writes, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance. This is where it comes from. You want the strength to overcome temptation? It's not found in you, it's found in Jesus. Ask him for it. The next one is watch for the Lord's return. The two great motives we have for living faithfully is the man on the cross and the promises of his return. Watch for the Lord's return. These motives matter. In 2 Peter 3, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The question is, if this is real, does it change you? 
If, if the Jesus who came to earth to walk among us, who died on the cross to forgive us our sins and cleanse us with his blood, who through the power of the resurrection destroyed his, or showed his uh, sovereignty as he destroyed death, who then ascended to the Father and promises to return. If he is coming back, should that change the way you and I live and the things we prioritize? Absolutely. Watch out, he's coming back. And each and every day you can awaken with this truth. Today might be the day our king returns. Amen. And he says, don't get caught asleep. Don't get caught, what? He did what? He says, look out. He wants us to look with hope and glory about that. So we're told to watch out. The second thing that we learn from this particular teaching as Paul wraps this up, and I'm gonna show you here in just a moment, what Paul's actually doing is he's going back to the beginning of the letter and he's walking through every single comment he's made. Every chapter he is talking about in these five imperatives, standing firm in the faith. You might remember when we started this series, that in the first three chapters, Paul is talking about how the wisdom of man was polluting the church instead of trusting in the wisdom of God, and the cross was the display of the wisdom of God, that God, from the very beginning of our failure, pursued us to restore us. And in God's plan, it works. In man's plan, it doesn't. Man's wisdom is foolishness compared to God's. It doesn't even come close. So in verse 13, he says, stand firm in the faith and be courageous. I've lumped these two together because I think one needs the other. I think to stand firm in the faith in today's world, you're gonna to have to have courage. It's gonna to have to be a courage in trusting in Jesus rather than trusting in popularity or fame or power or influence. So how do we do that? Well, we preach the cross. We trust in God's wisdom. Paul would say to another church in Rome, he'd say, I'm unashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. The cross is what man needs. Now the world doesn't think they need it. In fact, when I said to you that I'm concerned that some of us will roll our eyes like Satan is a, is a comic book villain, there are some people who actually believe that Jesus is a comic book hero, that he's not legitimate, he's not real, that yeah, there was a man named Jesus who lived a long time ago, but we have turned him into a myth, this superhero concept, instead of understanding, no, when you look at your condition, if we slow the world down enough for each one of us to, to bury ourselves in our own soul, we know that we have failed ourselves. We know that we have hurt and failed others. We know that we have chosen selfishness over love and mercy. We know that, that we can't fix that either. I can't go back and take back harsh words or periods of my life where I ignored my family. I can't go back and take that back, but I can live every single day. But living every single day going forward doesn't fix what I broke. It doesn't fix who I hurt. So where's the remedy to this? And then I know not only am I not always right with everyone in my life, I'm also not always right with God because I've been blowing him off more than the rest of you. What do I do in that moment? Unless we see the wisdom of the cross, that God came to show his love for us by dying for our sins, every single one of them, Jesus just becomes a good teacher, a good moral leader, rather than the hope of the world. And Paul is encouraging all of us to preach the cross the power of God unto salvation, not the power of repentance to salvation. And so we preach the cross, and this is chapters one, two, and three. Then you look at chapters five and six, and we're told that we should glorify God through the purity of the body, not just the, the literal body, physically, but the figurative body, the church. You might remember Michael DeFazio preached a powerful message about are we willing to have hard conversations with one another to protect all of our purity? not to allow sin to be a part of the church fellowship as if it's okay, because they were doing that. And Paul said, don't you love God's kingdom more than you love your comfort? 
And then I went into chapter six and seven and introduced to you this concept of sexual immorality, which is so forgotten in our culture today. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody and as long as everybody's willing, you can do whatever you want. Well, the Bible says you can, but you can destroy yourself in the process too. So Paul says, not only should we care about the entire church family, we should care about our own individual testimonies because we have been bought with the price. We are no longer our own. And for those who say, but I want my own freedom and I want to do what I want, then you don't want Jesus. You, you actually want to use Jesus. You don't want to open yourselves up to him and give yourself to him. And so he has called us to glorify God to the way that we live together and the way we live our lives. And we're also told to worship God in our work and play. The next two chapters, Paul does something fascinating to me and I didn't like it. I didn't want to preach on these things. But one is, how do we work and how do we play? How do we spend our time? Do we spend it to the glory of God or is it our time and we give God a Sunday or maybe possibly we'll add a Wednesday night or a small group? And I'm not making fun of those things, but please understand, all of those things are to inspire us to give God more, not to give him the minimum because we glorify God and we see that he talked to us about the way we serve, the way we love, the way we represent, if you will. So he told us to you know, look out, look ahead, pay attention. Don't get caught sleeping out there. The second thing he sees, stand firm. And to stand firm in these things is gonna cost courage. It's gonna cost all of us to weigh this out because for many of us, we just need to come to a conclusion. Does this matter enough to change me? Or is it just something that, uh, well, I should, but I'm not, I'm not gonna. You see, this isn't a rebuke. This is Paul going back to every argument and conclusion that he drew for them and he's bringing it all together. And he says, here's what it is. Will you be strong, courageous, stand firm on the things that God has asked you to because you trust God even though it won't make you popular in this world? We're living in a culture that, let's, let's understand this clearly, the church will never be a, have a favored status or nation status in the United States. If we're living out the gospel, we don't have to be irritating, but we will be so different it will cause problems. Jesus said, the world didn't love me, it's not going to love you. So when the church becomes so acclimated into culture that nobody knows the difference between us and them, we're not living out the gospel the way we're supposed to. Because what we do is we love our enemies. We, we love those who overpower us. We care and forgive and love. Why? Because we want love to be the statement of the cross. It is, rather than power or authority and so forth. Now, I didn't, never intended this, but I think Paul's message to the church of Corinth is so timely for us this week. For so many people angry and hurting and divided, remember our, our power and authority is not who sits at the White House, it's who sits on the throne. And the church cannot be stopped and it will not be stopped. There's no president gonna keep us from doing what we're gonna do because we're gonna do it because it works. Unashamed, strong, standing up. So now if you're reading into, well now, now I know how he votes, no you don't. I vote Jesus, how about you? And the church matters. And so as we go forward, this last one is be mature in the faith. Verse 13 and 14, he says, be strong, do everything in love. Continue on. And actually, if you look back, I think it's in the King James translation. It doesn't say be strong. It says act like men. I avoid that translation quickly because more than half of you are female. What he's not saying is there, act like a man, not like a woman. What he's actually saying in the text is act like an adult. He's talking about maturity. He's talking about not just having a moment with Jesus when you were younger, where you accepted his forgiveness, but it's actually growing up. The same man who said earlier, when I was 
like a child. I thought like a child and acted like a child, but now that I'm a man, I think and act like a man. What he's saying is I've grown up. I'm maturing in this. I'm understanding it. And my goal as a pastor for every single one of us, the reason this church exists is to help God's people find their completeness in Jesus. Not in the pastor, not in the church name, not in the location or the services, in Jesus. And that's a maturation process. This is what he's been saying to the church. If you go back to chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, he's drawing them into the maturation of what the gospel means and how it changes life. And it takes strength and it takes love. You might remember in chapter 13, he said, you can have all the gifts in the world, but if you don't have love, you're just making noise. And so love complements and balances everything. It keeps our firmness from becoming hardness and our strength from becoming domineering. It keeps our maturity gentle and considerate. It keeps our right doctrine from becoming obstinate dogmatism and our right living from becoming smug self-righteousness. You see, when we understand the gospel, the man who came, who died, who was raised, who ascended, and who's returning, when we understand the crux of how this all comes together based on the man on the cross and the work on the cross, then we choose to live a different life and we are walking a different path. There's nothing wrong with walking with the world if you want to help them change their direction. But if you end up walking with the world and ending up where they end up, you have misunderstood the gospel. Or as my grandfather taught me a long time ago, and it was just one of those weird moments that I'll never forget. And I don't know where he saw this, but it changed the way I viewed it. That the path to hell is wide and many are on it, but the path to heaven is narrow and very few choose it. And in the midst of this, having a conversation one time, my grandfather simply said, he didn't believe they were two separate roads. He actually believed the road to heaven ran down, right down the middle of the road to hell, but going in the opposite direction. And in that moment, I started to realize, I think that's been my life. My life as a believer is to follow Jesus down that road against the flow of the crowd and invite those going the wrong direction to join me in going the right direction. And that's gonna cost us something. And it's gonna take a strength I don't have. It's gonna have to come from Jesus. So we show love in the church. In fact, in verse 22, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. That's pretty harsh, huh? He said, no, no, you you understand that love is what will change people's lives. And if we're trying to live out of self-righteousness without love, may that be cursed. So in chapters eight and nine, we're told to give up our freedom so others can grow stronger. In other words, slow our walk down so others can join us. And we're also to give up our freedom so others can know Jesus. We're to use our spiritual gifts. We're supposed to use our finances to help other people experience the joy of following Jesus. Not just telling them what to do, but walking with them and nurturing them and discipling them because the love of Christ compels us. And it changes the way we worship. Elijah Daly preached a message a few weeks ago where he said our gatherings say something and our worship says something and our sacrifices say something. They either say God is or they say God isn't, but they all say something, which brings us to the gospel. I try my very best each and every week to take this back to Jesus where it should go. Sometimes the text doesn't afford me that chance, but I can always introduce the concept of God in each and every one. But today it's really simple. God saw us in his great mercy as rebellious children, and he knew our destination was nothing we could stop. He knew the penalty that we were due, that we had chosen in our rebellion. So he sent Jesus and Jesus came. And Jesus lived in a world, and I think you would agree with me that Jesus was fully aware of what was going around him all the time. He did not care about what people thought of him. He cared about what he was supposed to do. And by doing so, he did that lovingly, graciously, and mercifully. He also stood firm in his faith and he showed great courage. 
He went to the cross and died on the cross so that you and I might have hope and he did that at great expense to himself. And Jesus walked each and every day, not only maturing in his own walk with God, but maturing those who walked with him. I'd like you to take the elements that we have for the table this morning. And I poked fun at you the last two times about not opening them yet, but I realize for some of us it takes about 20 minutes to get that cellophane off. So I'm gonna permit you to make noise. But as you're doing it, before we take it together, I want you to think with me. The elements that you hold in your hand are symbolic of a man's life, a man who did physically exist, a man who was real and not a myth, a man who gave that physical life and ended his life on earth so that you and I might face death with power rather than fear. This was a man who took Satan seriously. He took temptation seriously and he warned us. This was a man who gave up everything so that you and I could have a moment like this and we could sit at a table with him and we could remember him. We could toast him. I know that makes some of you awkward. Part of my job is to make you think. It's moments like this that we all gather. We come from different places. Some of us have had lives we want to hide. Some of us had pretty easy lives. Some of us have been the golden children and some of us have been forgotten and rejected. And the beauty of this is some of us have sins that would take too long to confess and some of us of just trying to figure out, I've been a rebellion of God and I didn't even know I was doing it. You see, what's the beautiful common denominator in this room right now is that bread and juice symbolizes a man who doesn't care about any of that. He loves you, he died for you, and he wants you to follow him. And so when we do this together, we call it communion, a community of people gathered around Jesus Christ, remembering our King, our Savior, our God, and realizing, let's be alert, let's stand firm, let's hold on to our hope, let's grow together for the sake of the kingdom. So as you eat and drink today, eat and drink to his glory, please pray with me. Jesus, in your honor, for your name, for your purposes, we sit around your table and we thank you. We receive you but may we receive you in such a way that others might join us on this journey. May we invite those heading the wrong direction to join us as we follow you through difficulties and trials toward home. So that day that we get home and we're safe, what a blessing that will be. Lord, we love you and we choose to serve you. Through your most holy name we pray, amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.